Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, we thank you today as we have sung. When we put our trust in you, our lives are not shaken. Irrespective of what we go through, irrespective of sometimes the uncertainties that face us, we thank you. When we trust you, when we trust you, we are not shaken as your people. Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, I pray you prepare our hearts right now to receive your word. Your word that brings light, life, strength, comfort, hope. Living word, living word into our hearts. Thank you for your presence here. Thank you. You come yourself because you love every single person here. And even sometimes when we don't love ourselves, you step beyond that. And you show us your love for us. Thank you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hope you're having a good week. This week. How many are ready for God's word this morning? I trust you are. I really do believe that the Holy Spirit wants to speak into our hearts today to encourage us and strengthen us where we are. A week last Sunday, I don't know if you remember, but we started a new series of messages that we're calling Fresh Focus Thinking. It may be a time for you to have a fresh focus in your thinking. That's what we're going to be looking at over the weeks to come. And unpacking God's word to see just how we can do that so our lives can take on all of the riches and all of the abundance that God wants our lives to have. If you remember a week last Sunday ago, we started out by looking at a man called Asaph, who was a close associate of King David. He was a prophet, a psalmist, and a poet. And Asaph knew firsthand about all of the incredible miracles that God had performed for his people throughout history. He'd seen firsthand God's goodness. He'd seen how it had never failed, how it had never faltered once in the lives of this wonderful nation that had been chosen by God. Yet in Psalm 77, we see Asaph in a season of his life where he was very poor, very poor internally, suffering from an impoverished mental state of mind, a state of mind that was self-magnifying. And everything, because of that, was negative and going wrong for Asaph. 
Asaph, in Psalm 77, zoomed in on a very self-centered picture. In fact, when you read Psalm 77, in the first nine verses, you see that he's magnifying self. And consequently, as he does that, he zooms God out. Asaph is filled. In the first nine verses of Psalm 77, with a hopeless perspective about life. His feelings, his emotions, dragging him down, slumping him, causing him to be apathetic about this wonderful gift that God had given him to live for him. When you read First nine verses, Psalm 77, it would be easy, we said, to pity and sympathize with Asaph over his poor place of life that he'd landed in. Be easy to sympathize with this man when you read those first nine verses until you realize that Asaph was solely responsible for creating his own poor state of mind. It wasn't God. It wasn't people. It wasn't even the external circumstances of everyday life around him. It was Asaph that had created his own very poor mental condition. Asaph himself had embraced thoughts and views about God and life that he should never have entertained. One of the things that's really important to see when you read this psalm is that the direction of our lives always follow the strongest, most Dominant thoughts that we entertain and embrace. Asaph was on a road that was painful and bitter. A road that was full of complaints and criticism. Because the most strongest dominant thoughts in his mind drove him down a road of despair and sadness. And he allowed them. He chose to entertain them and embrace them. He filled his tank full of fuel. He put his foot flat on the accelerator of his thinking and sped off on a road of doom and gloom. And that's what you see in the first nine verses of Psalm 77. Asaph was not seeing life as it was. Asaph was seeing life as he was. But this great man, and I tell you, this was a great man. And we're allowed to see into the private pain and turmoil of this man's heart in Psalm 77 as he bears all for us to learn from. How he honestly 
and intimately brings us into his private thoughts. He was a great man in doing that. This great man, in spite of his despair, encountered huge transformation. Isn't it wonderful? When Jesus comes to the, into those despairing moments of life, when he comes into those dark moments where the questions are far bigger and far more than the answers that we have, Jesus comes and brings transformation, brings a great leap and a great advancement in our lives. In spite of his despair, in spite of the pit that he was in, within him, within his thinking, he encountered huge transformation. In verse 10, he voiced four words of confession that changed everything for him. When he said, this is my infirmity. This is my infirmity. He woke up and got off the dead-end road that he was on. And he confronted how he had been thinking. He confronted how he had been thinking. He addressed the thoughts that he had entertained in his mind and chosen to take hold of and allowed them to take hold of him. He confronted how he had been thinking and therefore he was confronting how he had been living. And at that moment, Asaph sees that he had been the cause of the infirmity of his life. He had been the cause of the very problems, the very perspectives of his mind. He speaks to himself in the remaining 10 verses of Psalm 77, and I encourage you to read this psalm and study it, and you will see it. It is a psalm of two halves, and one is like darkness, and one is like broad daylight, with the sun shining and everything restored. In the remaining 10 verses of this psalm, Self is no longer the dominant voice he listens to. He begins to magnify God. And what a transformation takes place in his life when he begins to magnify and exalt God in his thoughts and in his communications to the world about him. It was fresh focused thinking on the goodness of God that changed everything for this man. A man once said to his friend, if ever I find the person that's causing me all the problems that I'm facing in my life, I'll kick him up the backside hard. Well, his friend turned to him, smiling, and replied, well, you better be prepared not to sit down for a very long time then. Because you're never going to stop kicking yourself, are you? The point was a simple one. It's far easier to look outside of ourselves and attribute blame to others for the conditions of our lives. 
rather than take responsibility for the problems that we ourselves have created. This goes all the way back to the beginning. When God came into the Garden of Eden, as he always did in the cool of the evening, to find the two that he'd created, that he loved and doted over. The honest, simple question rang out as ever before. Adam, where are you? And the response was, we're naked, and that's why we're hiding. And then slowly it goes into a conversation where, God, where, where Adam blames God for the woman that he had given him. And then suddenly when God questions the woman, she's blaming the serpent. It's far easier to look outside of yourself and attribute blame to others than take responsibility for the issues and the problems that very often we create. When Asaph said, this is my infirmity, life changed drastically for the good. Because suddenly now he confronted the cause of all of his inner turmoil. When he addressed that, when he addressed that, and brought God back to center place in the picture and perspective of his mind, everything changed. Almost instantaneously, the change was huge. You know, as I was studying just this week, my mind went back to a time where my nan and Grant took me and my brother on holidays to Switzerland. And if you've ever been to Switzerland, you'll know that it's impossible not to be awestruck by the huge, majestic mountains that surround you. We were there in Switzerland, little boys, just looking, seeing these magnificent mountains that surrounded us. Well, one day we went on a day trip, a sightseeing trip to see the mat. The, the mountain, of all mountains in Switzerland, the Matterhorn. And it's Switzerland's most iconic mountain. And when we arrived before this grand, majestic mountain that towered above everybody, we arrived at a viewing platform. Everybody was there, taking pictures. They weren't taking selfies then because they didn't have any phones. But they were all clicking, taking their shots, taking their snaps. Others looking through telescopes. Well, of course, when I saw a telescope, I ran up to it, put my eye to it. I could hear people excitedly describing what they saw as they zoomed in and focused on the summit and on various parts of the mountain. So I put my eye to the telescope, but I couldn't see anything. Everything was a blur. Everything was 
distorted and dark. They were getting a close-up picture of this glorious, majestic mountain that towered into the heavens, and I couldn't see anything. All I could see was a distortion of images. So I quickly turned to my grandpa, started complaining, it's not working, grandpa. The telescope is not working. It's broken. Well, he came along, and as a good gramp, he showed me. Now, son, there's nothing wrong with the telescope that you're looking through. It's as good as all of the other scopes. You just don't know how to use it correctly. Suddenly, his hand came on the scope, and he started to refocus the scope. And when he did, what was blurred, what was dark, what was a distortion, suddenly became sharp, colorful, brilliant, and picturesque. He zoomed in on the summit, and now suddenly I could see what everybody else was seeing. Now my excitement could be the same as everyone else's as my vision became crystal clear because suddenly I could see what everybody else was seeing. All I needed was somebody else to come alongside and show me and help me how to focus and adjust the lens correctly. Then I could enjoy the view, just like everybody else. You know, when I thought about that little story in the week, I thought very often that's not too dissimilar from how we live our lives sometimes. Instead of God's Word fine-tuning the lens of our thinking, our own way of thinking takes over. Or the pressure of other people's views change our focus, impact our lives. And what should otherwise be a glorious picture of God's life in our lives is diminished to a distortion and a blurred view every single day. Without fail, our minds need to be adjusted. Our minds need fresh focus. Fresh focus on God's thoughts from God's Word. And that's one of the clear messages that we receive from Asaph in Psalm 77. If our focus is self-centered or self-magnifying, life can quickly spiral down negatively. It can become a blur. It can become a distortion. Darkness can set in. However, when God's Word is magnified and in clear view, 
our mind's eye, our lives become bright, colorful, expectant, hope-filled. The Apostle Paul, an incredible man, just like Asaph, shows us a moment in his life when his thinking about life and about God had lost focus. In Romans 7, we see an awful picture. And I'm so glad, I said this before, but I'm so glad how the Word of God doesn't hide the weaknesses, the frailties, and the dark moments of incredible men and women's lives in His Word. God's Word brings us right into the complexities of life where people are struggling. Why? Not to criticize them, but to give us comfort, to give us hope, to help us in our despairing moment and to lift us up and to, and to generate that expectation that life can be more than what it's been or more than where it's at. Romans 7 brings us into an awful moment in the Apostle Paul's life. An awful picture where the lens of Paul's mind, again, was focused on himself. He's all bound up, trying to do the right things, trying to please God in his own strength. And it's a certain parts of Romans 7. It's a picture of just sheer exhaustion. This man is just running out of strength, running out of life, exerting all of his energies and getting nowhere, failing miserably. Parts of Romans 7 is much like the first nine verses of Psalm 77, in that it's painful and pitiful to read. Because in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is completely defeated. This incredible man. You talk about a brilliant man, a traveled man, educated man, very religious man that loved God and the Scriptures with an incredible passion. I mean, you're talking about a brilliant man, a Roman citizen a master of language, a master of culture, a man that was able to converse at any level, the lowest levels of life. He wasn't intimidated by, neither was he intimidated, intimidated by the presence of kings, governors, and rulers. This is the man who we find in Romans 7, who is at a place of complete darkness, a place of complete hopelessness and defeat. And he honestly, transparently shares this moment of life with us because he wants to help us, give us hope, to know that God never leaves his people there. In this chapter, Paul is bitterly disappointed with himself and is in a state of mind that's anxious and self-consumed. Listen to his words. Just a few verses. In chapter 7, verse 19 through to verse 23, he says this, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. That's a picture of struggle, despair, and hopelessness. Paul realized that his greatest problem in life was who he was. All the way through this chapter, all of Paul's thoughts are negative and introspective. In this chapter alone, Paul uses the personal pronouns of I, me, and my over 40 times negatively. There's over 20 references to the law and the commandments and how he cannot possibly obey them. So in despair at the end of himself, he cries out for freedom, for transformation to take place. You see, God never leaves us at that point of crisis. God never leaves us at that point of despair when we recognize that we are who we are, where we are, and how we need to change. It's in that moment that there's a change and a transformation in our thinking. He cries in despair at the end of himself. And verse 24, Paul's at a point of change where he acknowledges that, listen, he acknowledges that he is wretched. That's not a nice place to come to, but it's an important place, as we'll see. It's not a pleasant moment for this man, but a brutally honest one. And just like Asaph came to his moment where he said, this is my infirmity, so Paul comes to his moment where he declares in verse 24 of Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am, Romans 7 verse 27, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That word wretched that Paul uses about himself means, listen, to be in a miserable, distressed condition of life. The cry of his heart. See, he knew that there was more to life. There was more to living than just going round in the ruts of life. Going from day to day in this miserable, distressed condition. He knew that there was more. He cries out desperately, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this miserable, distressed condition of life? 
Notice he doesn't say, what must I do? Because if his condition of life was far beyond any improvement that he could make. He realizes that this answer is beyond him. So looking out of, outside of himself, he cries, who will rescue me who will rescue me from this body of death that's caused my wretched state of life it's interesting that Paul uses this awful phrase body of death because he's likening what he was going through to the terrible form of punishment that the Romans used on occasions when they found someone who was guilty of murder. The Romans in certain circumstances would strap, listen to this, would strap a dead body of a victim to the person who had been found guilty of their murder as a form of punishment, as a form of torture. The guilty perpetrator would have to physically carry the weight of their own sin as a consequence of the crime that they had committed. They could not free themselves from the sin that they had committed. They were sentenced to carry that sin that they had committed around with them wherever they went for the rest of their short life. Legally, no one was allowed to set them free. The guilty perpetrator had to bear the weight of their own crime as punishment. No deliverance could be given. As that dead corpse slowly decomposed, it would eat its way into the flesh of the perpetrator, bringing about the most excruciating end of life. And this, this is the graphic parallel that Paul is making as he sees his sin before God. It's like a body of death that he can't release himself from. It's destroying him. It's taking over him. It's stopping, hindering, and, and breaking apart all of the wonderful potentials for his life and his future. And that's why he cries out for rescue. That's why he cries out for salvation. Paul pictures himself as a guilty man, unable to free himself from the power of sin or history's hold over him. Who will deliver me, he says, from this terrible body of death that is strapped to me, that's part of me? that I can't release myself from. And in that moment, in that moment, he receives his revelation of Jesus. In verse 25 of Romans 7, he says, listen to this, thanks be to God. You see, it's at his lowest moment in life that God comes to him. It's at that lowest moment of life that Jesus 
reveals himself, rescues him, shows him his provision of salvation and sets him free. I said this a week last Sunday ago, it's amazing how God can come into the most lowest moments of your life and turn them into the highest, most glorious moments of your life that will change your life forever. Hallelujah. You could be at a low moment today in your life. You could have been going through a series of low moments in your life. And you think it's hopeless. I don't know where to turn. I tell you, you've been under God's observation. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He'll come into that low moment of your life and he will transform it. And he will make it the highest moment in your life. So that that very low moment you look back on and you'll say, thank God for it. Hallelujah. And you'll give him praise for the valleys as the mountains. You'll give him praise for it all. That's what he does to this man here. Lowest moment, the most despairing moment where this man sees the body of death that he cannot set himself free from. It's in that moment that he gives thanks to God because of the deliverance that Jesus Christ has brought in his life. Verse 25, Romans 7, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. He doesn't turn to his friends. He doesn't turn to some kind of positive thinking guru. He turns to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the deliverer of humanity. And what a change. In that moment of revelation, Paul gets set free from the weight of sin and that body of death that he carried around that the law of God condemned. It's a miraculous change. The old life goes. The new life comes. And now it's a new life, not outside of God, but a new life empowered through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul no longer focuses on what he can't do. His mind is filled with what Jesus has done. When you look and listen to Paul in Romans chapter 8, we're listening to a brand new man. And that's what you step into after verse 25. Romans 8 unfurls and we see a brand new man living a brand new life. A new creation in Christ Jesus where all things have completely passed away and all things have become new. All the negative pronouns that he'd used in a condemning way about himself in Romans 7 are all gone in Romans 8. Jesus is now the center focus of Paul's life and Paul's thinking. The theme of Romans 8 is all about the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to note that when you read the book of Romans, and I encourage you to do that, up until Romans chapter 8, there, ha there have only been two mentions of the Holy Spirit by Paul in this letter. The first was a passing reference to the spirit of holiness in 
Romans chapter 1 verse 4. And the second described the Holy Spirit as being poured out in our hearts, shedding the love of God abroad in it in Romans 5, 5. Yet now, in Romans chapter 8, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit 20 times. And as we read this chapter, it's easy to see his focus of mind. It's no longer consumed by self-strength. It's no longer consumed by what he can do and what he can't do. He's living a Holy Spirit-centered life in Christ Jesus, his Lord. Later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 to 18, the Apostle Paul would write these words. Now the now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That doesn't sound like a monotonous life. That doesn't sound like just getting from one week to the next. This man is no longer stuck in a rut going round in circles with no purpose day after day. No, Romans 8 is a chapter that's full of freedom. It's a magnificent chapter that runs in line with what Paul had said and spoken to those believers at Corinth. It's a chapter where Paul is focusing on Christ and his life in him, zooming in on the glory of God. It's a chapter of growth, progress, and transformation. As this man is experiencing life ever-changing, ever-growing, getting greater and larger and more abundant as he focuses his mind on Christ. It's a chapter of ever-increasing glory because this man is no longer self-centered in his thinking, but Holy Spirit-focused in his living. Romans 8, you read it. The pressures of life that Paul faces are far greater and more severe. It's not that things get easier. It's not that the pressure is relaxed. No, things are harder. The pressures of life are more severe in this chapter. The challenges are bigger. But this man is speaking confidently now, thinking well, overcoming, because he's living in the power of the Holy Ghost. As we come to a close this morning, I want us just to think about 
some contrasts between these two chapters. Where Paul is living one type of life in Romans chapter 7. And where transformation takes place and he comes into a brand new way of living. In Romans chapter 8. Romans 7. Nothing is working together. In Romans 7. Everything is going wrong. Nothing is working for this man. But in Romans 8, he's not trying to work anything out anymore. As he declares, Romans 8 verse 28, words we all love and know well. And we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's not a man now that is struggling. That is not a man now who is striving. That is not a man who is in despair. That is a man who is being led by the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, I will send you another helper. That helper is here. He has not left since he descended. On the day of Pentecost some 2,000 years ago, he is here to aid you, to help you, to strengthen you every single moment of every single day. Hallelujah, the Holy Ghost. What a wonderful friend he is. When I look back over my life to the times and the seasons of my life, which have been many, there's been many hills, there's been many valleys. But I'm telling you now, the power of the Holy Ghost has come. Every time that I have called, he's been there to assist. And I know that that's your testimony too. He's worked it out, not always in the way that we wanted him to work it out. But I'm telling you now, he's worked it out and brought glory to God. What a wonderful life we have been privileged to live in the power of the Holy Ghost. We're not living in Romans chapter 7, despairing, trying to, you know, attain to standards and laws that we can never attain to that reveal our sin. We're living in new life, Holy Ghost life, for every minute of the day. It's wonderful. It really is. We're all things... Work together for good. That's why we can smile. It doesn't mean to say life is perfect. Like I said, the pressures are more severe. The challenges are bigger. This man's just, as they come and as they queue up and as they mount up and sometimes as he sinks into some of the darkest moments, he's just there in his prison cells in the complexities of life, knowing that even beyond the turmoil that he's in, it's going to work for his good because God's in charge. In Romans 7, this is a good one. In Romans 7, Paul had brought up charge after charge against himself. It's painful. It's pitiful. And that's what we all do. We bring charges up against ourselves. Well, God couldn't bless me because of this. And God couldn't bless me because of that. And I could never have the peace of God because of this. And all of this, my God, what does the future hold? 
and this and that and charge after charge after charge after charge. And the enemy is just rubbing his hands, smiling. That's right. As long as you believe that, I got you. Well, I believe in this season there's going to be some fresh focus. Where we're going to forget about all of those charges. Because those charges were nailed to the cross. And Jesus Christ was punished for our sin. He went to hell for it and bore the judgment of God. So that we could be made whole and healed completely. Charge after charge after charge. Paul brings up about his life, concluding that the law condemned him as a wretch. But in Romans 8, 33 to 34, Paul's now in a different place because the Holy Ghost has opened his eyes. He's been rescued. He's been saved. He's been delivered. In verse 33, he comes out with these incredible words. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If God, it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us all. What a transformation in a man's mind. What a transformation in a man's heart. What a transformation to, to, to go forward with into a wonderful future where the glory of God is ever being revealed in that place of life that he brings us into. Transformed, changed, delivered. His question that he sends out is a universal question. He isn't just asking the company around him as to who will bring a charge against God's elect, like I would ask you this morning, who's bringing a charge against God's elect? No, it's a universal question. It's a question that goes into the depths of hell. It's a question that goes up into the highest heavens. It's a question that goes universally around the world. If my life has been rescued, if my life has been saved, if the Holy Ghost has filled me with his life, then who? Who? Who in all of hell? Who in all of heaven with all of its divine... Perfection. Who universally across the world will bring a charge against God's elect? Because I am justified. Because I am sanctified. Because I am an object of God's pleasure chosen by Him. I can never, ever stand with the condemned. What a change. What a change. In Romans 7, Paul is very much alone, dominated by a sinful past that he calls a body of death. It's slowly destroying him. He can't separate himself from history's hold. 
But in Romans 8, finally, in the closing verses, he victoriously declares, he's not alone anymore. Verse 37, he says, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he says this, this isn't a, a man that's on his own, that's left to defend himself, holding on for dear life. He says this, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth. <laughs> I tell you now, when this gets into your spirit and you start to unpack it every single moment of your life, my God, you'll go off like a firework. Praise God. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. That's right. He doesn't say me. He says us. It's an all-inclusive us. Paul sees this on behalf of all God's people for all generations. And he's just the carrier. He's just the messenger of the great, wonderful, glorious news that he's shedding abroad in Romans 8. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'd say that's fresh focus thinking. I'd say that's a transformation. I'd say that's revelation, Holy Ghost-filled life. Jesus said, I've sent you another helper, not any different from me exactly like me, to be with you every moment of every day. I can ask the musicians to come. We're going to close right now. We've said a lot this morning, so thank you for listening and for your open heart to receive God's Word. You know, today, you may realize that the lens of your life as you've looked out on life, has been blurred, distorted, dark, and in some ways hopeless. And you've asked the question, what's wrong with my life? What's wrong with my mind? There's nothing wrong with your life. There's nothing wrong with your mind. You just might need some outside help to touch the lens, refocus it, to remove the blur, 
the distortions and the darkness. It's a wonderful moment when God does that. When suddenly everything becomes crystal clear. Well, the pressures are still there. The struggles may be bigger. But you're living in full color, not black and white. Full color. And the picture is what causes you to get up on the inside and stand strong and go forward in life with a smile on your face. Maybe it's a time today where the Holy Spirit is doing a little adjusting. Where you're going to wake up and the priority, the priority is going to be the scriptures. That's where I've got to get my focus from. The word of God. I used to go to my grandfather when I was 15 years of age when I first asked Christ into my heart. And I'd say, Gramp, I'm reading the Bible. You told me to read the Bible, but I don't understand it. Do you know what he used to say to me? Son, just keep reading. <laughs> you're on. You're on. Two years on. Gramp, I'm reading the Bible. And I've been reading it for a year now. I read and read and read and read. And I don't understand it. Can you help me? Yes, son. Go on then. Just keep reading. <laughs> Just keep reading. And he used to say that. I, I tell you what, I love that man. Keep reading, my boy. I mean, he wouldn't even say it in a nice tone like. <laughs> keep reading, my boy. And he talked to me. He was old school, my grandfather. He talked to me. And every time he talked to me, in, in loving tones, I, I, I felt as if I was getting told off. Well, I wasn't getting told off. He was just being compassionate. Keep reading, my boy. Do you know what? It's fantastic. It's wonderful to have older people who have walked the road, that have great wisdom that can help us with. And one of the, one of the, the, the things that the enemy does, he tries to detach the sons from the fathers. Detach the younger generation. For, and I'm not talking, you know, father and son kind of thing. Not only that. Generationally. Where the, where the, old, where the younger despise the older. Won't happen here, I tell you. The young people need the older generation more than ever. Amen. And the older generation need the younger. We need... We need us, everybody. We need everybody. Keep reading. Well, I kept reading and slowly, slowly, things become alive. And the word of God, you don't get it all at once. But little by little, it's, it's an incredible journey. But just put the time in. Put the time in. Don't try and read all of the Bible in one day. But just open it. Open it. Open it. And just say, Jesus, please, even if it's just a verse, listen, start there. And he'll do it. You get excited. And it'll become alive. Alive to you. You might need some refocusing on the lens. God's going to, by his spirit, he's going to do that. I really, with all of us. Hey, listen, with all of us. Or it could be that you realize every single day, man, I've got to make sure that I've got my hand on that lens of my mind, 
that I'm taking responsibility for it, that I'm not allowing, like Asaph, I am not just going to allow anything to run through this precious instrument that God has given me. I'm taking charge. I'm taking responsibility. And when I fail and when I falter, as we do, in, our, in my mind, I address it. This is my infirmity. And I deal with it before anything starts to grow and get out of control. And if it has got out of control, do you know what? He's even our deliverer in that. So we can't lose. Amen. Amen. Father, I thank you for your precious people. Lord, you know. Sometimes the biggest challenges, very often the biggest challenges, is in our mind. It is like a battleground. Sometimes it's quiet and peaceful. But lots of times it's everything's going off. It's just life fire. But in the midst of all of the challenges in our mind, the challenges in in our lives around and about us, Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would experience this transformed life, abundant life, as Paul did in Romans chapter 8. I pray for every precious person in here, young and old, that right now, right now, they would know the comforter, the helper, the one that stands beside us, the leader, the leader, the Holy Spirit leader. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Let's stand to our feet. Give God praise for his word. This morning, we're going to sing before we go. And listen, have, have an amazing God filled week. Look, look for opportunities to bless people this week because I'm telling you, Jesus, by his spirit, is going to put you in situations where you can be such a great blessing to another. God bless you. Have a great week.